This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the second installment of the UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series for winter 2017. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Greathouse. Despite the slight cold in my voice, I am super stoked. Um, students that have been taking this class for a while know that I've been talking about Stacy coming for quarters now. This is like a build, the buildup has been happening, and now uh, tonight Stacy Peralta is here with us. At age 11, Stacy was already competing um, in, in skateboarding with the Z Boys, the infamous Z Boys. At 19, he was at the peak um, of, of, of the sport, he was the number one skateboarder in the country. Um, and what was interesting is he decided at that point to pivot and go more into the business and mentoring and coaching side. He joined um, George Powell, who is uh, another former distinguished speaker um, who's with us here tonight. Quite honored to have him in the audience. He joined with George Powell, and they created Powell Peralta, which is the world's largest skateboard company um, as of today. <coughs> Excuse me. Stacy did a lot of really um, pivotal things while he was at Powell Peralta, one of which was creating the Bones Brigade. Many of you are familiar with the folks in the Bones Brigade, Steve Caballero, Tony Hawk, Lance Mountain, Rodney Mullen, and Tommy Guerrero, just to name a few. If you just Google those names, you'll see about 90% of all the tricks ever devised were those folks. I mean, it was just an incredible, groundbreaking group of young people. And we're going to talk about how Stacy pulled that group together. Um, it was not intuitive. He did it in a very uh, clever and counter counterintuitive way. Along the way, he broke all the rules when it came to marketing. Other people were marketing skateboards in a very traditional, lame sort of way, and uh, Stacy just said, no, I'm not, we're not going to do it that way, and really changed the way um, skateboard marketing, um, it, it's all being copied now, it's been copied for many, many years, but at the time it was uh, groundbreaking. And he also started doing videos. He was uh, shooting videos of these unknown skateboarders that are now cult classics. If you've ever, um, just go online and look for uh, the search for Animal Chin, <coughs> excuse me, and, or ban this. They're great videos. They hold up now. Um, they've got a really um, kind of fun uh, Three Stooges sort of feel to them, but the, but the tricks are incredible. That's why if you go on YouTube, you're going to see a gazillion views. In 1992, um, Stacy left Powell Peralta. He decided to follow another love of his. So you see a pattern in his, in his career. He gets to the top of his game as an athlete. He pivots. He gets to the top of his game as a business person in skating. He pivots. In 92, he decided to go to Hollywood and start writing screenplays and get into uh, film, get into television and, um, and video. He, it was a uh, nine-year um, overnight success, and we'll talk a little bit about um, all the work he had to, uh, to put in to become an, an overnight success after nine years. His film credits uh, are significant. Many of these you've heard of. Dogtown and the Z-Boys was a great documentary film about his early days um, skateboarding in Venice, with the, um, with the legendary Z-Boys. That won the Audience Award at the 2001 Sundance Festival. In 2004, he released Riding Giants, which was a documentary about big wave riding. I can't watch that movie and not just like go, how, how do they do this? This is insane. It's a great movie. He wrote the screenplay play for the fictionalization or the dramatization of the um, Z-Boys movie. Um, that was called The Lords of Dogtown. And then he, he followed that with Bloods and Crips, Made in America 2008, which I watched last night. And I hope we have time to talk a little bit about that. That's definitely worth uh, watching. 
And he also did The Bones Brigade and Autobiography and No Room for Rock Stars. And both of those were released in 2012. So Stacy is an inspiration on a variety of levels. I'd love to have him here because he pioneered and professionalized this emerging sport. Wasn't really even considered a sport at the time where he became an athlete, a coach, and then a business person. Um, he, he's just done an incredible job of taking his passions, both film and skateboarding, two very divergent, very diverse things, munging them together and finding that intersection, which I want all of you, everyone in this room and everyone watching this around the world, I want all of you to seek that as well. You, you, you find the things that you love to do and you find things in your life that you could make money doing and find that intersection, that intersection that will just, it will just set you free. When you find yourself doing the things you love to do and getting paid to do it, it won't feel like work. Let's, let's um, welcome Stacy to our class. Sorry. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. I get to be fanboy. Sorry about that, guys. Um, <clears throat> so you and I have, have uh, traded some emails, and I know we share this, what we think is the importance of demystifying success yes. for young people. Yes. I think it's important for students to realize that it's not something that happens to other people. It's what can happen to you. So yes. can you talk a little bit about your life and how you... Um, I can only tell you this much. <coughs> if I was your age and I was in this room right now, and we went back 30 years and I was listening... I would have been told I needed um, qualities by a person in my position that I need to succeed. And I want to start this whole interview off by telling you four things that you don't need. And I was always told that I did need these things, okay? The number one thing that you don't need to succeed in life is self-confidence. Now, if you have it, that's great. But if you don't have it, you don't need it. You don't... um, You don't need talent to succeed. If you have talent, that's fantastic. But if you don't, that's fine. If you are filled with self-doubt and you are filled with insecurity and unknowing, that is completely fine. And I say this because I had all of those three qualities. And if you have never had higher education, you can also make it in this life and be very, very successful. But if you have any four of those, that's fantastic. But I'm here to tell you, you don't need those four things if you want to do what you want to do in your life. And I'm saying that because I've had three careers and I've had a lot of time to think about how I got where I got. Because when I was young, the people around me, family and things like that, they didn't have a lot of expectations for me. Because I was a bit like uh, that character, Dennis the Menace. (laughs) Um, I just got, I was into a lot of little trouble and having fun. And I had a really difficult time when I was a kid uh, paying attention in school. So I appreciate that. So I wanted to say that right at the beginning just so we can start. But I want to challenge you on that. I'm going to challenge you on that. I'm not saying you're wrong. But somebody from the outside looking in (laughs) will look at your career and they'll say, lack self-confidence? Dude, I saw Z-Boys. Are you kidding me? You guys were full of self-confidence. Lack talent? You guys had crazy talent. So how, I know you're not just talking about skateboarding, but how does that map into Look, when everything? George and I started the company, I had, no, I had no education whatsoever to run a business. Right. I had no education about what advertising was, marketing was, product strategies were, any of that stuff. Right. I had no education in how to manage people, manage a team, create a team. Um, I learned everything by paying attention. The one thing I can say, uh, there's a couple of things in my life I can say that have been constants. Um, 
I've never been afraid not to know something. Mm-hmm. I've never been afraid to have someone look at me and go, you don't know that? Right. Ever. Right. And I still am not. Right. And as a result of that, I've been asking questions my whole life. I'm a real question person. How do yep. you do that? And so a lot of things I didn't know how to do, I simply asked, how do you do that? How does one do that? Or I paid attention and watched people that were doing that. Yep. That's one of the biggest things that I, I simply did. Yep. So you were curious, which pays off. Curious. Right? Being curious works. But also, more than that, more than curious, I just I wasn't afraid not to know. Right. And to, make, and to have you go, how could you not know that? Right. You know? Yeah, but that's a, that's a form of self-confidence, like being self-confident enough to go, yeah, I don't really know that. Yeah, but I didn't feel confident. You didn't feel confident at the no, time? No, yeah. no. Well, it's important to put yourself, for young people especially, in an environment where people won't chastise you for that. Like, they'll actually answer your question. Like, if you ask... Hey. Well, that's the whole thing. You have to ask it whether you're going to get chastised or not. And if you get chastised... You're you in the wrong place. Well, either that, but you can't let it bother you. You still right. got to go ahead. You're right. going to get chastised. You're going to get put down for various things all the time. Right. Whether you succeed or not, I've been put down more for my success than my failures, strangely enough. It's, re- it's really kind of odd. The world is full of haters. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird thing. But. <laughs> well, you, you and I are of the same generation. Um, on different coasts, we experience the same cultural um, phenomenon. So cosmic children who feel the juice of powerful waves, the Hal Jepsen movie. Jepsen. Uh-huh. Jepsen movie, excuse me. Um, and it's just funny how when I, when I think about that movie, I saw it um, about the same age you were. Um, I didn't go on and become a skateboard pro or anything, but, but it impacted your life. In a, in a, I remember the movie from the time, and it impacted your life in a lot of ways. I see in you know, the Animal Chin and some of the other things you did, some of that same cinematography, some of the same sort of sure. super 80s. No, no, my, my skateboard videos followed the surf video model. They followed the ski model. Right. It was the same thing. Right. We just made the skateboard videos to be viewed in, in a living room as opposed to in an auditorium. Right. And so there was a, they were a bit more nonlinear. You could pick them up at any point and start them. Which lends itself to digital viewing. So even though yeah, digital was, wasn't on the horizon... Yeah. It's now the sort of thing you can, that's why I was saying, check it out on YouTube. No, you we just... thought at the time we called it random access viewing. Ah. Because, and also because George and I were in a business where we didn't have adults above us. Right. George was the only adult in the room. <laughs> so, you know, we didn't have anybody telling us that we couldn't do things. Right. And right. as a result, we got to do what we wanted to do. We got to take, uh, make a lot of experiments. We got to fail a lot. Right. And that was really, really important. And as a result of that, we, didn't, we weren't constrained by what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. That can be very, very constraining when you're operating. Absolutely. When and people it, are telling you, no, this is the way to do it. There's many other ways to do things. Right. And if you're going to do things from an original standpoint, you have to have freedom. And if you don't have that freedom, then you've got to figure out some way to create that freedom for yourself and do that stuff after hours if need be. Yep. Well, and I think it's redefining failure as well. Like I, in my startups, I would always say that we're not failing if we're learning. If we're moving forward, we're not failing. You know, yes, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to course correct, but we're going to keep going. Yeah. So let's go back well, to... Well, wait, uh, can okay. I just t- sure. touch on that a second? Yeah, yeah. Um, for years, I was asked by people, you know, you've succeeded, you've had a lot of success, blah, blah, blah. You know, what's, what's the, there must be secrets involved in this. <laughs> and... I really didn't have a great answer until a number of years ago, I had a really, really difficult time with a project. Mm. Just a knockdown, drag out time, where when it was done, I went into a full three month depression. I bought a stand up paddle board, and I didn't buy the board to surf on it. I bought it because I needed something to do to spend my days doing because I had a civil war going on in my head. Wow. When it finally calmed down, it came to me, and I was ready to go back to work again. It really came to me that one of the greatest 
traits that I've had in my life is I've learned to pick myself up. And I have failed so many times in my life that I've realized that it's not just learning to fail. It's learning how to manage continuous failure because failure never stops. You, when I was a kid, you guys' age, when I was your age, I had this feeling that you succeed and once you arrive, you're there. Yeah. That's just not the case. Right. Because once you get there, there's another place to go and another place to go. And unless you're doing the same job every single day, which is maybe putting a door on a car where it doesn't yep. change much, yep. you're going to be required to think of new ideas and solve new problems. And for me, I realized that I understood how to fail. And maybe that was from surfing and skateboarding of hitting concrete and doing it over and over until you realize that you got to roll. Right. You're never going to stop falling. you just got to learn how to fall. It's the same with business. You've just got to learn how to do this, and you've got to learn how to do it over and over. And it doesn't stop. You put that so in. that's why. That's, honestly, that's probably the most important thing I've ever learned and you know, why I've been able to do this. I don't know if you plan on writing a book, but if you do, that's got to be in there. I well, think yeah, that's a I mean, huge lesson. Yeah, sure, but yeah, it's a, it's a big part of it because it hurts. Yeah, and this doesn't mean that I'm saying I manage it and I'm good with it. <clears throat> right. I still get bummed out. I get depressed. I, you know, wallow in self pity and all that stuff. But I at least know. Okay, here it comes. Here comes the depression. Right. Here comes the self pity. Okay. Here comes the <laughs> this. And then after a while, it, it gets out of my system, and it's like, okay, I'm ready to start back again. Right. And I do it, and I get back up, and let's let's start this again. Nice. Well, I, I want to take the folks back. A lot of people know your career pretty intimately, but let's go back to age 11. It was about... I didn't start competing until I was 16. Oh, yeah, hyperbole. You but waited no, until no, you were 16. No, but I was skating since I was a very, very little kid. Okay. Yeah. So you were hanging around those guys when you were younger. But it... No, let me... When, when I started skateboarding as a kid, it's hard for you guys to imagine, but there was a day, there was a day on this earth when there was no such thing as a skateboard in a shop, a skateboard shop, skateboard park, skateboard competition... There was nothing having to do with skateboards. And in fact, if we wanted to ride skateboards, which we did, we had to go to thrift stores where they sold old things, you know, used things, and right. buy roller skates. And we would cut the roller skates in half. We'd both go in there, a friend of mine, he'd, <laughs> we'd buy them together, pay two bucks. Right. I'd take one skate, he'd take the other, cut them in half, we'd bolt them to our boards. And that's how we rode. That's what we rode. And so I happened to live in a neighborhood off Venice Boulevard in West L.A. that just happened to have a skateboarding crew in my neighborhood. But we did not know if there was another kid on planet Earth that was wow. riding skateboards. Didn't know. Now, we had these banked playgrounds in, in uh, Bel Air that were 15 or 20 minutes away from my house. If we could con our parents into taking us to these playgrounds, we would go there on weekends because they had these banked walls that were like asphalt waves. Well, we would go there, and we'd see evidence that other skateboarders had been here. <laughs> it's like, wow, someone's been here, but we never saw them. Wow. And it was, we did this activity at the exclusion of all the other sports that were going on because it talked and it spoke to us. But there was absolutely no thought of a future in it because it didn't even exist when we were doing it. Right, right. In a sense. And it wasn't until I was 15 years old that I met the Z-Boys, you know. And oh, we, and we okay. actually met through surfing. Got it. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. When, what was the inflection point between being a surfer first and a skateboard guy when the waves sucked to actually focusing more on skateboarding? Back then, you could actually have some form of a surf career. Some form. Right. Very small. There right, was no right. such thing as a skateboarding career. Yep. What happened was 
we got sponsored by the Zephyr surf team as surfers, mm. and we wanted to be professional surfers. Yep. One day at a meeting in the Zephyr shop, Tony Alva says, we've got this great surf team, and we also have a great skateboard team. Why don't we make a skateboard team as well? And Jeff and Skip said, yeah, I guess we do. We have Jay Adams, Tony Alva, Stacy. Let's do this. So we made the skateboard team there as well. They started making the board, and then that started happen, happening. And with the growth of skateboarding in the 70s, with it exploding, that then became our future. And we stepped away from surfing because the board on our feet had wheels instead of fins. What did that mean at the time, though? Let's do, let's have a team. Like, did you just start competing? I mean, you didn't have sponsorships right at that point. Well, they were sponsoring us. The store was. But we were, you know, the urethane wheel had been developed, and we were getting the inkling that something's going to potentially happen here. Right. Something's growing. You could get a sense that it's getting very popular. Right. It's getting in the imagination, the popular imagination. So we knew that there was potential there. Yep. You well, you, and, and, and I have heard you say, you just said it earlier, that you, know, you didn't think skateboarding was ever going to go mainstream, and then Tony does the 720, and you're thinking, okay, maybe at this point it No, will. I never thought it would get to where it's gotten to in my life. <laughs> Insane. Yeah. But, 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 but I have, think that's important to your story, because it wasn't as if you had your eyes on the prize saying, you know, I'm going to focus on this to become a professional skateboarder. You had that passion, and you just kept at it, and then ended up combining it with an ability to make a career. Is there, is there any... Is there any words of wisdom for young people that want to do that, that want to find things they love to do and, and, and make money while they're doing it? Do you feel like you just don't give up? What's the... I think the first thing you've got to do is find out what you love. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. Because when you love what you do, it's not work. Right, I agree. And that's what... what like, I, I consider myself a hamster on a wheel. When I find the right wheel, I never want to get off of it. I can stay on that thing forever. I don't, the only reason I get off is to eat. <laughs> and seriously, I'm that, but that, I'm that way in every endeavor I like doing. Like I learned right. how to kiteboard three years ago. Uh-huh. I'm the same way with that. Yep. Um, it just it consumes me. It completely consumes me. So my advice is to find out what you love doing. What turns you on? What activates you? What is the thing that gets... That, cannot stop you from getting up every morning and doing what you want to do. That's what's most important. Yep. Well, but, then, but then, once you figure that out, the most important thing is focusing. You have to focus. Yep. And it's like, you know, we all know magnifying glasses. If you put a magnifying glass in the sun and you tilt it properly, that beam will come down. It'll burn things. Our minds are the same way. And you have to focus your attention on what you want, and you have to keep it focused there. It's harder today because there's so many things distracting these people's right, minds. Right, right, right. It's really hard. Every generation has its challenge. But today, the biggest challenge is distraction. And it's going to get worse. Yep. You know. <coughs> well, it's interesting to hear you say that about the, the wheel because you've jumped wheels many, many times in your career. Let's go. T- well, let me back up a second. When I, when all of a sudden, when I became a professional skateboarder, right. I, was ma- I had middle-income parents. My parents both had jobs, okay? I was making more money as a 17-year-old kid than both my parents. Wow. That was a really strange thing. Wow. And I was making that money doing something that seemed impossible, seemed absurd and completely ridiculous. Yep. Skateboarding, right. okay? Um, nobody in my family expected it to ever last. And when it happened, um, I realized, well, I'm very lucky. This is a really lucky break. And this could be a doorway to the world. So I took it very seriously. Yep. And I never believed in it, in the costume of it, meaning that I was a skateboarder, 
but I never believed in the rock star BS that surrounds all that. I right. didn't buy into that. Right. To me, it was serious. I, gotta, I, have to, I, I don't want to end this and then end up looking in the rearview mirror and going, damn, I blew that. Well, I think it's clear when you know the story, the, not to besmirch anybody else from the Z-Boys or whatever, but you, were, you just had a whole different perspective on, on life. I want to read you a quote from George, and just I want you to react to it. Here's something <clears throat> uh, George Powell said, and I want to read it so I, don't, uh, so I get it exact. Some people just resonate on your frequency and some don't. Stacy did. We just hit it off. We came together in a sort of magnetic way. Our chemistry was really good. In addition, Stacy was 20 going on 30. I love that part. He was head and shoulders more mature and thoughtful than any of the young pro skaters I knew. He was in a class by himself. Did you feel that way at the time? Or, or? Well, I didn't feel what, what George is giving me there because I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it. Right. But I was aware I was different. I was aware I wasn't them. Mm-hmm. I felt lonely because of that, because I was different, and I, there was a lot of pressure to be like them, right. but I wasn't. Um, but with me, I couldn't do enough in skateboarding. I, I wanted to work. I wanted to go everywhere across the planet and do demos and show people what skateboarding was. Right. I couldn't get enough involvement. Nothing was, like, nothing was too much. You know, and do you think the other guys were just more of let's party, let's? There continue. was a lot of that. There was quite a bit of that. And, right. But it's understandable, man. We were young kids. Yeah. No one taught us how to do this. Right. We're thrust into this, you know, this professionalism. It's right. brand new for skateboarding. We're getting a lot of attention on us because we're, you know, in magazines. We're getting a lot of money. We have a lot of people pulling on us. Yep. And that's a big deal for a kid, man. It's a really big deal, and that happened to us. Was Maybe, there a, but was there a moment that there, it might have it might have been because. When I was a little kid, my parents were always generous at Christmas. Yeah. But they said, all year round, whatever else you want, you've got to make it happen. Yeah. And as a result of that, I always had jobs. That's good parody. I was always working. I always had a job. And as a result, when I became a pro, it was like I realized, wait a minute. You know, I've got to look at this as a profession. And yep. I did. Yeah. A and lot of the other guys didn't have that work ethic that I had because they, hadn't had to, they didn't have to do that. Right. I always did. And I think it showed in what they later accomplished. I'm going to go to the student question in one minute, so if you can be ready. So interviewers always ask this sort of question, but I am curious, was there a moment in the mania when you think back where you're like, man, this went from like sitting at the skate shop saying, let's have a team, to this is big. Was it a magazine article? What, was there a moment where you just said, wow, this is for real? It happened, that, that happened quite a bit. Um, it happened when Did it I just keep escalating. Just kept escalating. I went to Australia and I um, I got surrounded by so many kids for autographs. I had to sit down. <laughs> they came up on top of me until wow. it was pitch black. Wow. I couldn't see. I couldn't see anybody. I couldn't right, see where right, to give right. back the the things. I went to England. I got off the plane on the tarmac, and there were photographers on the tarmac. I walked down the stairs and they said. Get on your skateboard and do some tricks. So I did, and I got arrested. I got arrested right when I went to England, and then they you know, they bailed me out. And then they took me to the shop that was sponsoring me, and they had this giant car with my name on it and a giant skateboard on the roof. And I was just like going, "Oh my god, right. this is ridiculous!" Yeah, it was crazy. It was completely nuts. Wow. And then we did TV shows and stuff like that, and it was ludicrous. Yeah, ludicrous. Yeah, that must be surreal. Yeah. But let, me, but, but let me take it even to today. Okay. It's even more absurd today. Mm. I get Instagram pictures of kids dressing up on me as me on Halloween. Now, never in my <laughs> life, if someone would have said, what do you hope to be in your life? Well, I hope to be a Halloween costume. Right, That's right, never right. something I had anticipated. Is there actually my... a, 
can I buy a Stacy? Or is it no, just, no, you can't buy it. You oh, have to make that's it. That's an idea. There, you guys should take there that. There are kids doing Give this. Give him a cut. No, but it's, I had my brother call me two Halloweens. He goes, because there's kids <laughs> on my porch that are dressed nice. as you. Nice. It's ridiculous. So it's still absurd. <laughs> that's a crazy. We'll take the first uh, student's question. What was the main setback that kept Powell Peralta from keeping market share in the early 90s? And with hindsight, what would you have done differently? That's a difficult question for me to ask because I, that's when I had left the company. And so I can't really um, – it, it's, it's hard for me to answer that because I wasn't there doing it myself. You know, um, That's more of a question you'd have, to, you'd have to ask George if he was up here because we have different times that we're in the company. I'm sorry I can't answer that. Yeah. So we will talk about when Stacy left and <clears throat> were, uh, their sales were quite good. Let's go back to the mania then. So you're going to England. It's insane. Australia was insane. We're, it's, it's always fun to look back. At the time, did you give yourself a chance to enjoy it? Oh, or, yeah. Okay, so you, you do feel like this was something that you were able to savor and go, wow. Oh, man, was, are you kidding? I, who knows? Some people look back and say, wow, I wish I would have. No, <coughs> I got to wake up whenever I felt like it. Yeah. Make breakfast whenever I felt like it and spend my day skateboarding every right. single day and right. every night. And if I didn't want to skateboard, I could go surfing. I mean, it was a dream, absolute dream come true, California lifestyle. It was yeah, amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. No, thoroughly enjoyed it. That doesn't mean there wasn't pressure at times. Sure. Doesn't mean it, there wasn't heartbreak at times. Doesn't mean there were times, uh, you know, that I was fed up and had, a, you know, competition or whatsoever. But no, it was an absolute dream life. Yeah. And that's an important lesson for young people. Just, you know, take that time. You're not going to get 10 shots like that, right? I mean, no. It's the same with a startup. I often tell entrepreneurs, <clears throat> you're going to get two or three of these if you're really lucky. You're going to get two or three companies that do really well. Enjoy it. Don't get just caught up in all the problem solving and all the hassles. Just take a, you know, take a chance to step back and, and yeah, but pat yourself on the back. I will say one thing. That business works at such a fast pace and such a frenetic pace that that is a really, really challenging thing today. It is. It's really, really But you can find yourself constantly problem solving five years into it going, I really never took a chance to. And this is coming from entrepreneurs that I've talked to. They're like, yeah, yeah. you know, you read the articles and yeah, we made a lot of money, but all I remember is the hassles and yeah. the setbacks and the yeah. pain in the ass. Yeah, but we're talking right now as an athlete, it's a different thing. It's like, I got to have fun as an athlete, mm-hmm. which was really fun. The, the, down, uh, the down aspect of my careers, our careers in my generation were very, very short right. as compared to the Tony Hawk generation, right, which right, were right. much, you know, decades long. Yeah. Ours careers, three, four years, that's it, and we we're out. Yep. We so had... I saw the writing on the wall before my career was ending, right. which is why I found, you know, George and I hooked up yep. because I could see this is going to end. Yep. Well, and you had the foresight. It's... Well, that's one of the things about success in life is you have to look down the line. Yep. How many surfers do we have here? Any surfers here? Raise your hands, guys. Okay, well, guys for, those of you, for those of you who don't surf, I'm going to use a surfing analogy here. When you're surfing a wave, you're continually looking down the line. And the turn you're doing right now is really preparing you for three turns down the line. And the reason I bring this up is because in business, you have to continually look down the line. You have to know what's going on today, but you have to look three months Six months, five years. You really have to know what's going on. And if you don't, you, get, um, you, can, get real, you can have real problems. So that's really, really important thing. So as a yep. professional skateboarder, as a young kid, I was going, this is going to end. The people that are mm. currently sponsoring mm. me are going to let me go in my contracts up. Right. There's no one else to take over for them. What am I going to do? Right. What do I want to do? And so I found out, I figured out what I wanted to do. 
and I started talking to people. And George was just one of them. There was two other people I was talking to, but he and I just had, like he said, a magnetic connection. In fact, the first time I saw him, I had never seen him before, and I went, oh, my God, I know that guy. I mean, it was almost cosmic. Wow. Yeah, it was, really, it was really interesting. Well, that's my next question it relates to mentoring. And <clears throat> as I tell young people all the time, get a mentor early in life. I mean, it's, just, it's invaluable, and the, the amount of um, acceleration in your career is, 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 can be phenomenal. Um, I want to read you another quote um, from George, because uh, I really like the arc that your mentorship and friendship kind of took. I think it's a natural arc that many take. Um, here's some more words of wisdom from George. He said, um, at 20, Stacy was more savvy about how to market skateboards than I was 20 years later. Stacy's an amazing human being. I soon found myself learning many things from him. And I think he quietly mentored me along, along the way while I thought I was mentoring him. As this relationship developed, it caused some tension as we learned how to be equals instead of an employee and an employer. But it turned out to be a great partnership and a friendship that is still rich and rewarding to this day. And I like that quote because I think that's really that arc of that mentoring. It, there's going to be some tension at that certain point where the younger person starts to challenge the you know, that mentor. But anyway, I've said a lot. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that mentor relationship uh, began and how it evolved over time. Well, I think, first of all, we understood clearly between us the division of labor. Yeah. George knew what he was good at, and I knew what he was good at. He, he didn't actually, on, to, his, to, his, um, to my benefit, he didn't know what I was good at. I didn't know because I'd never done it. He actually had a business, so mm. I knew he knew how to run a business. Mm-hmm. He was a product engineer. I knew he knew how to design products. He did, so he had, the, he had it set in motion. I was a young kid saying, I think I can do this, and I want to do this. And somehow I convinced him that I could do it, and so he took me on. But I think even George was like, look, I'm going to give this kid a shot, but I don't think he had an idea right. of what was going to happen with our partnership, nor did I. Right. You know, um, but again, all I was doing was paying attention to what I was seeing in the skateboarding industry, seeing where things were and where they were going and where they could go. And I was also going, what do I want? As a skateboarder, mm-hmm. what do I want? Mm-hmm. And so the ideas that I was coming to George with, like wheel ideas, board ideas, graphic ideas, were based on what I wanted and what I was seeing in the field. Because George was in the company, I was in the field all the time. Right, right. And that's another thing that's important <coughs> is I, I get creative people telling me all the time, like, well, you know, what should I do? And I was like, well, what do you like? Mm-hmm. What, do you, what turns you on? Follow your own ideas. Because that's ultimately what's going to bring you success, is your ideas. Right. That's the beauty about a startup or a smaller company is you eventually get to do the things you like. In the beginning, you have to do everything because there's nobody yeah. else. But eventually, you can hire yeah. people to do the other things. Yeah. But I think you're, um, you're being humble. I think it would have been easy for a young person, top skater at the time, to not have that appreciation for someone in the industry. Just see, like, I'm the, I'm the guy out there doing the tricks. I'm this the guy. is what I told you. I never bought into the costume. Which is, well, I never bought into that. <laughs> I didn't. Look, if I bought into it, I wouldn't have been a... Look, I was a very famous skateboarder. I was 21 years of age. In that field, I was very famous. I put my career aside and started hauling around 13-year-old kids in my car right. to contest. That's right. about as uncool as you can get. <laughs> okay? But I knew that that was the future. My, right. The future wasn't me anymore. It was them. Right. And so I knew that guys that I was competing against were looking at me going, what's he doing? 
what's he doing with those little dorks? Right. But I knew that there's down the line, this yeah. is going to pay off. No, it, was you were... a, it was a huge investment, and I took a chance. And, um, but I was willing to put up with the grief, the misunderstanding, the insecurity of it, yep. because I knew that if this works, it's going to work big. Yep. No, you were four or five steps ahead of everyone. Right. Talk, but but no one it. else in the field was doing that. Right. And so I'm going to tell you, man, success can be very lonely. Yeah, it can be scary. It can be scary and lonely, and you, you, you're, you're constantly challenged with insecure feelings. Right. Constantly. Right. And it doesn't get, it doesn't get to a point. It, doesn't, it never evens out. Right. You know? No, it, especially when you're out there on a limb and you're out there going, maybe, it is, maybe they are right. Right. You've got to remind yourself, nope, they're wrong. Yeah. We'll take a, the next student's question. Uh, yeah, so a little bit of context, like, Today, there's a lot of companies like Red Bull and GoPro that have kind of like really made the videography of professional uh, athletes like very commonplace. Mm-hmm. But you kind of found success in the industry like before there were those companies, um, and it became like really, really ubiquitous in society. So my question is that with technology and social media advancing, evolving so quickly, uh, how do you think the industry will adapt to these new trends and uh, new recording methods? Well, when you say new recording methods, what do you mean other than what we have already? Well, I mean, I don't know. There's like, there's a lot of like, you know, 360 degree things. Like I, it, oh, I see. You mean just mo- all the technology? Te- technology, but really more so just like the way like media and social media interacts with society. Okay. Say. Well, this is a, a really interesting question because we're being bombarded with technology. We're being bombarded with um, the ability to do anything on a smaller and smaller and smaller scale. So you, with what you have on your lap, can make a film now. Remarkable. I mean, simply remarkable. But no matter how much technology they give us, it all comes down to one thing. You've got to tell a story. You've got to, otherwise, it just becomes action pornography. And one thing that, I, that I, I think is unfortunate with so many of these companies is they just pump out nothing but action pornography. There's no context behind it. And you guys, you need context in your life. Everybody needs context. And so I think the important thing is to look for the story, to develop story, because that's what connects us to the heart. And ultimately, it's the heart that drives us, not the intellect, not the adrenaline. So, Action pornography. I like it. Well, you know, look, I, I'm quote, I quote invented the action sports video. I don't like action sports videos because they're not giving me anything that I haven't seen already. Mm. And I wish they would just broaden it and tell more stories. There's right. just too much stuff out there, you know? Yeah. Well, with the, but I won't, I won't go down that line. Well, but with a GoPro and a you know, selfie stick, now you can do yeah. anything. So let's go back. You were saying it's scary being out there on your own, and we're going to talk about the Bones Brigade in a minute. Yeah, because before you, yeah, <coughs> before you ever succeed in the building up to it, yeah. you're trying things, you're doing things, and there's nothing to show for it. Right. And there's nobody there to say, this is the road to go down. You have to, that's why it's, it's, you're going down a road blindfolded in some cases. Well, let's, let's talk about your marketing, because in retrospect, it's easy to say Stacy the genius didn't show product in his, in his ads, but at the time, that had to be scary, because if you flip a skater magazine, it was, <clears> a, <throat> it was a misogynistic picture of a woman in a bikini, right, holding a skateboard. There was that. I mean, there was. There was a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. And you were like, okay, that's been done. Well, what, let, me, I can't, let me just tell you what happened. Tony Alva started his own skateboard company. And a, his partner was a very bright young guy, a marketing guy, really, really, really smart guy. They were the first company to come out and do very unusual advertisements. Mm. And his advertisements completely flattened the skateboarding industry. When we would pick up Skateboarder Magazine, 
we wouldn't open it to find skateboard pictures. We went to Tony's ads. Really? We wanted to see what they were doing next. Yep. So that made a lot of us realize there's a new way to do this. Mm-hmm. So when George and I got in business, I said, look, we have to bring on this guy, Craig Stesick, because this has got to be first and center what we're doing. We've got to advertise differently. Right. This was brand new for George. He had not done, he, he was more, he was brought up in more of the traditional mode of, you know, you shoot the product square on yeah, and you have yeah. all the information. Get the lighting right. And Craig, who I brought in, did everything he could to get George not to hire him <laughs> by being difficult, you know, because that's the way he is. He, he wanted to test him. But George, to his credit, let us do it. Mm. And six months later, we start winning awards for the ads, and business is increasing. And he realized, wow, this is working. I get it. And that's right, where right. the mentor thing was shifting back and forth. Yep, I'm yep. learning from him. He's learning from me. And we're both learning together. Totally. Because it was an experiment for both of us. Right. We're both learning as we're doing this. And we're both young. Yep. And some of the folks may not know some of these ads are pretty iconic, like Burning the Car. I think that was in George's oh, just Yeah, there's driveway. so many of them. Yeah. Was there any that you, at, even at the time or later, said, okay, that didn't work or that was too far? Oh, yes, yeah, a lot of them. Do, what, any, any specific examples or anything no, you No, no, I don't have examples that I couldn't tell you. I mean, <coughs> you just show me and say, yeah, this one's drab and Got doesn't it. hold up. This one's great. But, but I, was it usually because they were drab is, is why they didn't, you what? didn't like them? What? Was it because they were drab that you didn't like them in retrospect? Or was there everything no, that was poor, so outrageous? Either a poor concept or it was a concept that wasn't carried out properly. Okay. Sometimes it just works. Sometimes you get a concept and you lay it out and it, and it fulfills perfectly. Right. And then sometimes you just don't. Got it. It's just some, you know, but we're doing one a month. <coughs> right. And then we were doing four a month. That's a lot of different For the different Different magazines. products. It was yeah. a lot of, pro- lot, of, lot of ideas coming up every single month. Right. You know, a lot of stuff. Okay. Some working, some not working. I'm going to go to the next student's question in a second. I got one more. Let's go back to the Bones Brigade. So I really admire the way that was pulled together. Let me see if I characterized it correctly. If I don't, correct me. Um, at that time in the skating world, it was a nascent industry. And if you wanted to build a team, you just pay guys a lot of money, and you'd steal them from other teams, and you'd have a mercenary team of folks that you're paying a lot of money to. Yeah, but there I wasn't know. like a camaraderie. There wasn't a, a real element of... Um, right. So, well, it was also, it was much quicker that way. Of course. Because you can instantly have a just team. Just write a few checks and yeah, you have a team. you had a team. So Stacy's looking, remember the wave analogy, he's looking down the line, he's two or three steps ahead of the competition and thinking ahead. How did you do that? So I have sort of this romanticized version of you, like driving around the country, finding these, these young kids. You went one down, uh, down one level. You were going after kids on the way up that had promise, that had talent, how did you physically do that? Like you didn't tell me come from Florida. I went I mean, to amateur contests all over the country. You were just not all over the country, but I went all over California, and I knew everybody in every other state that knew significant skateboarders. So where people kind of like whisper and go, "Hey, man, you got to check this guy out." Like yeah, and when I would go on tour to do demos, I'd see people. Alan Gelfin, who invented the ollie, right? I met him when I was on tour in Florida. Okay, that's how I met him. When I brought him to California, he brought Mike McGill with him. Uh-huh. Um, I met Tony Hawk at a skateboard contest. I met Caballero at a skateboard contest. But you were there scouting talent? or were you... I was there doing a lot of things. Okay. I was scouting talent. Selling and I was just paying, atten- no, just paying attention to the industry and showing force right. as, a, as our company. Right, right, right. When, you know, we had to go to contests and show force who we are. And I had to make sure our banners were there, our skaters were there, we had the right shirts, we were doing the right thing, that my guys were winning, all that stuff. Right. And so that was a big deal. And while I'm doing all that... I'm also looking at the field. Who's new? Who's doing what? Who's dropping out? Who's coming up? Who can I count on? Who can I not count on? Yep, yep. 
you know. Well, and I also <coughs> one of the things I encouraged the skaters on my team. You know, it was the only way you could succeed back then in skateboarding was through competition because this was pre-skateboard video. So mm, competition right. led to skateboard mag pictures. Without winning contests, you didn't get in the magazine. Right. So one thing and then t- magazines led to sponsorship. Well, it's all working in one, but you have to, to, to sustain your sponsorship, to sustain who you are, right. you, have to, you have to remain in the magazines. Yep. One of the things I told the guys on my team is that you have to show up at every contest with a new trick. Ah. And you've got to do that for a number of reasons. You've got to do that because you've got to show your competitors that you're not relenting. You're not giving them an inch. Yep. You've got to show the judges that you brought something new from last time that they hadn't seen before right. and that you're still pushing Everybody has to know that you're doing, that you're going forward, because the second they spot your weakness, you're done. Yep. And everyone's looking for your weakness because they want to beat you. Yeah. And so you have to constantly stay ahead of them, constantly, constantly, constantly. That came out in the autobiography, which if you haven't watched Bones Brigade and autobiography, and I think Tony makes that comment, like always trying to come up with that new trick. And people would rag on him and be like, dude, you're so uptight. No, but but they all had to do that. And we can't name those people now. Yeah, but you you all, everybody had to do that. Yeah. But that's the same. So George and I were the same way in business. We had to continually come out with new things, whether it was ads, product, ideas, shirts, whatever. Right. Constantly feeding this thing. Got to stay ahead. Constantly. Well, it, it, so it was a brilliant strategy because you ended up with a team that stayed together for years, dominated the sport, spun out into all these personal brands, that many of which mm-hmm. we still know today. So it was just such – it's like if you want to look at a case study of like how to crush your competition – by playing the long game, not by playing the short game. Right. Short game is just throw, write some checks. You don't get right. some, that was a great <clears throat> illustration of playing the long game, doing the hard work, driving around all these crappy skate parks, finding kids that you know didn't have the talent, and then spotting the ones that did and pulling those guys together. It's brilliant. Yeah, but, but you say work. I'm telling you, it wasn't <laughs> work for me. And I t- say this because I love doing it. I would, in one day, I lived in Los Angeles, I would drive to Huntington Beach, pick a skateboarder up, bring him back to L.A., take him to a photo shoot, mm. drive him back home, go somewhere else. I would have done anything because I loved it so much. Right, right. You know, and uh, that's... Well, it goes back to what we said. If, if you're having fun, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, man. You've got you to figure out what to do in your life where you can have fun doing it. Well, I'm gonna Look, put... we spend a third of our lives working. Yeah. That's a lot of our lives, man. We spend a lot sleeping, too, you know, but we spend a lot of our lives working, and I really can't tell you how important it is to find out what you want to do in your life and follow it, but sometimes what you want to do does not always equate with money, yep. and you have to put the two together, but um, it's so important because you guys are going to spend a lot of time doing this, and it's going to make your life so much more appealing if you wake up every morning excited. You know, yeah. and even when you don't like, even when you like what you're doing, you're still going to be challenged, but you're going to be excited about it. Yeah, and you can find that reserve of energy, you know, mm-hmm. when things are tough. Absolutely, because you know it's it's hard to do something you don't really like to begin with, and let alone when things are tough. Yeah. So I will go to the student question, but I just have one more. Actually, I have one question I want to ask, but I don't want anybody to answer. I just want you to think about this a second, because <laughs> um, I'd like to get your answer later, because it has something to do with what I'd like to share with you. But my question is this. In your mind, what is the one thing, the one thing, and maybe the only thing that you can call your own? If you guys can just think about that. The one and only thing that maybe you can call your own. And I'm going to ask you later what that is, and we'll talk about it. So anyways, put that away, and we'll keep rolling. Wow, I can't think. I've got to think of that one, too. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm curious if you could come up with three or four words, because I'm a big fan of culture, like 
corporate culture? What made that company work? If you think back on the Bones Brigade, if you could describe the culture of that team in three or four words, what would those words be? Uh, innovation. Okay. Um, three words? Three or four, whatever. Um, I don't, well, innovation's one, one or of two. Them, um, hard work. Yeah. And, um, that comes out in the video for sure. And lack of self-consciousness, meaning they weren't concerned about what people were thinking of them. Yep. In that regard. Yep. Ignore. They weren't trying to be the cool guys. Yeah. They were cool with who they were. Right. Yeah. Ignore the haters. Yeah. We'll take the next question. Being innovative in the skateboarding scene by creating tricks like the frontside lip to fakie and creating the skateboarding brand Pal Peralta must have helped you innovate into a unique document, documentary filmmaker. What is it that specifically sets you apart from the rest of the industry that you are proud of the most? Um, I think if I was to say I was, what's proud of the most is I think I just followed my own interests. I followed what interested me. You know, I took a screenwriting class years ago, and, one of the, and the teacher said, write about what interests you. Pick topics that you like. And I thought, wow, I've kind of always done that. And that's what it is. That's why I said to you guys, find out what you like, because what you like is your special gift. That's your special thing that you have, because only you see the world the way you see it. And so I think that everything I've done has some sort of a stamp that that's kind of represents who I am as a person. It's somehow infused in it. And um, I try to put it in everything I do. I try to get, I get very excited about what I do. And I love the process mm-hmm. of when ideas are just flowing. Yep. And, you know, as they're coming out, I go, oh, I'll take that one. I'll grab that one and that type of thing. But um, I, it's just my own sensibility. You know? Do you think you're... Screen, you wrote five screenplays. Do you think any of those will ever make it to the screen, or you just have walked away from they're all? Buried. Yeah, <laughs> they're in a landfill. You're trying to not think about them. Okay. Yeah, no, well, no, but they were a process of learning. Yeah, to get there, right? Yeah, yeah, of learning things. You know, something else I want to say that's really important is going along with what you say. Say it's really important that you guys understand your creative process, how you are as a creative person, and I say this because. Um, when I first started directing television shows, when, in TV, what happens is the way you get a job is you get, you get brought into a studio executive's uh, office, and they pitch you this TV idea, and you've got to pitch it back to them. Well, when I used to do this, I was so nervous and afraid and kind of almost locked up, and it really freaked me out. Like, why am I not more free in this stuff? And I just realized this is just part of my process. Mm. I don't have all the ideas at first. I need time to ruminate. I walk through the garden. I need to walk on the beach. I just need time to ruminate before I get my ideas. And I realized I, I learned how my process is and with all its eccentricities because they used to trip me up mm-hmm. and they used to make me feel like I was a failure right. and that I didn't have it. Right, right. But now once I understood, well, that's just the way I am. That's just the you know, stuff I do. That was very helpful. The other thing that I think is really important is that you work on your other creative endeavors. I have like five creative things I do. What are some of the other things? I do creative writing. I do drawing. I uh, do landscape, landscape work. I kiteboard. I surf. I skateboard. And, you're a creative. and I do them creative. I mean, I really do them. It's time to do this. Yep. You know? 
And I do, like, so, I'm not always making films. And I've got to have a place to keep that engine running. Right. So I do these things to do that. And, and to keep me in touch with my process. Is your writing, are you writing fiction? Are you writing? No, I'm, I'm currently in the process of writing something with somebody back and forth through texts. Okay. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. But it's a 30-year it's writing thing that I've been doing with somebody wow. for 30 years. And we just finished a book that's coming out pretty awesome. soon. Yeah. Awesome. That we started literally 30 years ago by mistake. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's talk about Crips and Bloods. Um, you're known for skateboarding, but I, I really thought that movie was incredible. What motivated you? And you can hear your voice in the interview. So you're standing there in South Central um, asking these questions, some hard-hitting questions of folks. Okay. Just how did that whole experience start, and well, then how did you come out of, the, right, out of this, that This goes back to this question. I made Dogtown because I wanted to see that film. Yeah. I made Riding Giants because I wanted to see that film. Okay, mm-hmm. Seriously, I wanted to see it. Yeah. I made Crips and Bloods because I wanted to see that film. And I made it because I'm an L.A. resident born and raised. I was a kid during the Watts Rebellion. I was yep. a, an adult during the 92 Rebellion. Yep. I didn't understand why the, the African-American kids in those communities were killing each other and why it was lasting. Mm-hmm. And so it just didn't make sense to me. And if you watch the news, you, oh, they're monsters. News right, tells you they're right, monsters. Right, right. I didn't buy into that. Yep. And I wanted to investigate it myself. And so I put together a treatment and I went shopping studio to studio to get money to make that film because I, as a filmmaker, wanted to investigate it and understand it myself. Mm-hmm. That was it. Wow. Because I don't believe anybody's born a monster. Right. And when you see what those kids are living through yep. and you see the America that they live in, which is not the America everybody else lives in, right. it's heavy, man. It's yeah. really, really, really heavy. And it shows you another side of this country that nobody sees. And the reason they don't see it is because in those communities, there's nothing to attract outsiders, meaning there's no right. five-star restaurants, there's no <coughs> hotels, there's, no th- there's very few theaters. So there's nothing to bring people in. Right. So consequently, there's this lack of mixture and there's a lack of understanding. And the lack of understanding leads to the demonization of that was it. Wow. I thought I had some cursory understanding. I didn't profess to be an expert, but no, after watching that, I'm like, whoa. It's deep, man. Even and the segregation in those own, in the communities. And it was legal. And it was legal. No, I'm talking about now with the gang segregation. Oh, of like, oh, yeah. I can't it's, cross well, that it's, street. It's because it's a mental thing now. Yeah. It's a mental thing, you know? So it's colonization of the mind. Yep. You know? But you meet these guys, even the biggest killers, and yep. they're human beings at no, heart. It came out. You know? They're yep. human beings. So it's. You know, they don't want their children doing it. They know right. it's wrong, but right. they're stuck. How do we get out? That's, that was the theme yeah. they kept saying. You know, how do we stop this? Yeah, so and then, that was, so. anyways, that was, I wanted to see it, yeah. the movie. Yeah. And I wasn't seeing it, and I wanted to, that so was that was it. Very well done. No, but that's, that's, I was following my own interests, and that's what I've done the whole time. Well, I want to make sure we have time for your questions. Mm-hmm. So do you want to go back to the audience and get a few? Yeah, does anybody have that? Anybody have a, a shot at that idea? What's the one thing that you think you can call your own? Anybody want to take a shot? Shout it out so the mics can pick it up. My word. Okay, that's My good. My word. That's good. Surf photography. Surf photography. No, I mean, I mean absolutely your own. It's not a thing. It's not a skill. It's not anything. It's just a one, 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 one thing. Getting there. Destiny. Your attention. Your awareness. Your awareness is the one thing, the one thing that you can call your own that nobody else has. And it's the one thing that will 
that will exist when everything else is gone. And the reason I say that, you guys, is because that's what this whole thing is about, is your awareness. And where you put it. You have to pay attention to where you put your attention. And if you pay attention to it, you'll find it's kind of surprising. And I just want to, I know that, I know that you all have one of these. This is an amazing tool, okay? Does a lot, a lot of things. But this is one of the worst distractors of attention on planet Earth, and it's only going to get worse. It's not better than what you have up here and in here. And you've got to be very careful how much of your life you spend looking in this thing because it's never, ever going to deliver anything to you. What you have to deliver is in here and in here and putting the two things together. And I, I can't tell you how important this is. I was not educated. I didn't believe in myself, but I was paying attention. And what's remarkable is all my teachers in grade school said, you've got to pay attention. <laughs> and I wasn't because I was dreaming. Right. So I, I just can't tell you how important that is. You have to treat your attention and your awareness as the most valuable thing in the world because it really is. Well, I think it if, really you, is. if you look at your career, we've talked about it. Um, you and George were attentive and aware of what was happening around you. And you morphed and changed and made it work. Whereas other people fell by the wayside. Right. But I've also learned because of those experiences how important this is. Yep. The other thing I, I have to, I'd like to share with you guys is learn to become good listeners. Maybe most important thing in life. When you listen to somebody, it's one of the highest forms of love when you listen to somebody. It's one of the most important things you can do. And it's so important in today's world because we're all talking too much. We're talking too much and we're looking at too much garbage. And you've got to learn to listen to people and you really have to learn to listen to yourself because that's when you're going to find out what your special thing is and what your special thing is. You've got to learn to listen because it's all inside of here and it's waiting to come out because you're the person to put it out. Each one of you is unique. Each one of you has your own attention and your own awareness. But it's up to you to find out what that thing in here that wants to bust out because you're the only one that has it. No one else does, only you. But you've got to be very quiet and gentle and tender with that thing. Otherwise, it's not going to come out. Yep. And you if know? you spend all your time buried in yeah, your phone. Yeah, just don't do that. Listen to people. Listen to the person you're with. Listen to the, your, you know, your friends. Listen. Wow. I, and you know what? I get paid to listen to people. It's what I do for a living. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I listen mm. to people. When I was a kid, I was very, very shy. And I felt very uncomfortable around people. And what, what, the way I was, uh, overcame it is I just asked them questions. Because once I asked them questions, they love talking about sure. themselves. Sure. And so I just listened. And it, it turned into a way of life. You turned know? into a career. Yeah. So anyways, but it's... it's, it's, it's it's what this is all about, man. We've got to listen to each other and wow. listen to ourselves. So, Thank you, Stacey. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.